Father, we thank you, Lord, that you open our eyes and our hearts as we've been praying. We thank you, Father, we've come through a revelation of gratitude. And now, Father, we want to be able to focus on the preparation that's here as many, many, many celebrate and rejoice the first coming of you, our Messiah, Lord Jesus, our Redeemer. And we ask you, Lord, to let us have an even greater excitement and to make clear our revelation of your next coming, your soon coming, an advent to one and an advent to the other. Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us, direct us. We thank you. Let everything that is said and done, both from our hearts and these words, be unto your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. And uh, just a little anecdote. I didn't want to break the brevity and seriousness of the moment as we were praying for Brian and Nancy. But uh, Nancy, you've already began your first mission, and that was when you said I am to that guy over there. So we, we, uh, we applaud you. That, that got you an extra check mark in the book of life up in heaven. And he's saying amen <laughs> with a big smile. Thank you. I want to deal with, uh, as we prepare for what the world celebrates as uh, Christmas Day. And I've said before, and you know, that the, the odds of this actually being when Christ was born, December 25th, are virtually none. It doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense in the theological chronology of the coming of Christ, the seasons, and all that we know. But we've also understood that we can have some tolerance and understanding to give glory to God even in some of the most difficult or some of the circumstances that we say, well, that's not quite perfect. I'm not looking for a perfect world until the Messiah gets there as a perfect Messiah, and then he will judge. What I am preaching is that if there's an interruption in time, interruption in the schedules and the politics and all of the things that happen around the world on such of one day a year, praise God be to that. It took a pandemic to take the world to a pause the last time. But the world didn't understand and accept it all the same, did they? Many didn't understand it was a pause to reflect and understand that God is God and He alone is the Redeemer and the Savior and that He can change times. Well, on this one day a year, even though it's different time zones on December 25th, no matter how people celebrate it, some celebrate it and they decorate a tree and some get upset with that and they say that's idolatry. Well, it is if you make it idolatry. No one's worshiping a tree unless that's what you do. Um, I've seen some people decorate their animals, little puppies, little dogs, little kittens that say, Jesus, Jesus, blessing Jesus. I guess we could say they're worshiping their dog. Um, I don't think so. By the way, you know, we all know G-O-D, D-O-G, right? So it's all good. Um, all kind of people approach it. I was in the Soviet Union. Uh, when it wasn't Russia, and it was a very uh, dark and difficult time for me personally there. Um, talk about uh, an oyster and a pearl, and God allowing some sand to rub you to the very bottom of your soul. Uh, and I remember being in Leningrad, and, uh, and there was snow, 
and the way that the people in the Soviet Union were allowed and permitted, and the only way they knew as children was to celebrate Father Christmas. They got rid of, 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 of Father God. They replaced him with Father Christmas. Father Christmas looked a lot like Santa Claus, and that was the celebration, and the children received presents, and the people uh, celebrated and frolicked in the snow, but without the, the realization or giving glory to God for the birth of Christ. It opened my eyes wide, and it helped me to understand that there are displacement and replacements all the way around. And the one thing I caution us as believers is not to be part of displacement and replacement. Things that bring the body together in unity, it's good. And sometimes, you know, we tend to become very religious, especially the more knowledge we have, the longer we've been around, the things we've been exposed to. It's like a rite of passage to saying, it's my way, that's the highway, and I'm not changing. But I'm not asking or promoting anybody to change to get away from the gospel. What I'm saying is, let's open our eyes and take a step higher. What's happening? And what's happening is, is that for that one day, even in China, even in China, believers will worship Jesus Christ. For that one day, the Chinese communist government isn't going to put them in prison for lifting up Christ. All over the world, some who have the knowledge, who have been told the good news, are going to worship Jesus Christ. They may not even understand the, the magnanimity of who and what they're worshiping, but you know, I know one thing that he says, whomsoever calls upon my name. Come on. Whomsoever calls upon my name. And I can tell you from my own testimony, I didn't understand Jesus at all. I was seeking a religious relationship with God. I didn't even call him my father. I called him the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But when I said that word, Jesus, all of a sudden, Jesus showed up. And I know that that is happening all over the world. I know that in Iran, people are getting visited, not by the tens, not by the hundreds, but by the thousands and the thousands, where Jesus himself is coming forth to people of another faith. He's coming to our brothers, right? We are all children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Ishmael, right? And Isaac, they're brothers. So even though sometimes in a religious nature, we tend to shake off brotherhood. When I say brotherhood, it's not brotherhood in Christ. It's brotherhood by, by genealogy, our brotherhood with the Ishmaelites, with those who have a different faith, a different religion, but yet they're of a bloodline that traces back and forward. I'd like to believe this, that because of the revelation of Jesus Christ, of the epistle that we get from Paul, of what we understand that comes forth from John, what it says is that if you have a brother who is not sinned to sin unto death, ask me for that soul and I shall give you that brother. We have a lot of power in Jesus Christ. Our very presence in places changes the atmosphere, changes the environment. We mused a little bit about angels being here with you, but that's fact. They are. You have angels that are assigned to you. I don't get into the whole 
uh, theology and background of angels. I have a friend of mine that's basically all he preaches, and that's fine. And uh, if you want to get into more detail about it, God bless you. I don't think it's going to change your life at all. I want to give you this caution. You cannot tell any angel what to do. Come on. You can't direct angels. They only answer unless they want to find themselves in rebellion to the captain of the Lord of hosts. All we can do is pray and ask the Lord to direct and command. And that's where I see that go sideways, by the way. People begin to direct angels. And the next thing, they're praying to medals and all kind of different things other than to the very source and the one. But this we understand and this we know, that we have authority and power everywhere we go and that there's a great host from the heavens and also of a spirit here on earth that is empowering us to prepare the world, empowering us to challenge souls, empowering us to maybe just trigger and give that one word that opens up somebody's heart and brings light into their darkness. So here we are in a season that is called Advent. The word Advent really means that it's something is about to happen, preparing for an event, Advent. The event before the event. And the event that it prepares when we look at the circuitous church year, which some study, and it goes through all the different things that happen in the church year. The Advent is that final round in the table, that the, in the circle that prepares us for Christmas, to celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ. But Advent beyond that also means that eschatologically that we're preparing for the return of Jesus Christ. And I want to focus, <coughs> excuse me, thank you. I did that just to get blessed. Thank you. Say it again. Bless you. Oh, thank you, Lord. Try it, Brian. It works. You know, you, yeah. You're having a little bit of a tough word with your wife. Just <gasps> all of a sudden, bless you. Oh, thank you. What were we talking about? Um, oh, Ralph smiling. You've used that one, huh, Ralph? You're going to. <laughs> okay. If you got nothing else out of this sermon, there you go. So what I want to deal with is the fact that you are the light in the world. And I want to talk about the similarities of the first coming and the second coming as we prepare. We're not in a hurry. Uh, we're not time sensitive in the sense that we have to squeeze it all into one. We have a few weeks before Christmas Day. And I want to lead up to that with our advent, our advent of understanding and revelation. Let's look first as, as what was happening before the first coming. What was happening? What were some of the significant elements of that first coming? And a, a synopsis of the Gospels is always your best way to understand the good news. If you just focus on Matthew or any one of the other ones, Mark, Luke, or John, sometimes you get a limited understanding, but when you put them together and you have a synopsis understanding, a synoptic understanding, then you get a, a better revelation of what's going on. Now, we know that Luke has many times been praised 
and recognized for being somebody who's very historically refined. He's grasping the points. He's giving us an understanding that's almost historical, it is spiritual, but with a little more detail than the other gospel writers. And when we start off in Luke, he starts off with the birth of John the Baptist. He starts off first giving the understanding of this one who came before the Messiah, and in the sense that he came before the Messiah, their lives overlapped with only a separation of six months, right? Elizabeth, the mother to John, was miraculously impregnated. Think about that a moment. This was prior to the miraculous virgin impregnation by the Holy Spirit of her cousin, her younger cousin, Mary. Interesting, they were separated by many years. Elizabeth was barren. We understand she was older. Mary was younger. We're not quite sure of her age, but some have said as young as 13, some say 14, some say 16. Um, we're not really sure. We do know this, that that culture at that time, like many cultures still in the East and the Mideast, the families made a mashad, right? They made a contract. And a lot of times they make it early and they have relations and they say, this is your son, and this is my daughter, and why don't we have my son and your daughter get married? And so they would wait for that opportune time. And the word in the scripture says that Mary was espoused to Joseph, but literally what it meant was she was, we would call engaged. She was contracted, there was an agreement for Mary and Joseph to get married. And so that said two things. Everybody else, every woman on earth, you stay away from Joseph. Every man, you stay away from Mary. These two are espoused. And so there was a type of a relationship between them and their families in that culture. And in that instance, we understand that Elizabeth was what? She was already married and couldn't have children for whatever reason. Was it age? Was it barren? Whatever it was. But there was a miraculous opportunity for her to have a child who happened to be from her husband who was a priest that tended the temple named Zechariah. And he uh, was a very religious guy. But yet the Lord found something in that family that said, these are good genes, and out of this is going to become the greatest prophet ever lived on earth, and he's going to prepare the way. So what we see with Luke is he begins by telling us in the very beginning of chapter 1, verse 5, that there was, verse 5, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah, of the daughter uh, of the course, I'm sorry, of Abia, and his wife was of the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Notice that they were Levites. Notice that both of them were joined together from a lineage of Levitical priests. If you will, John the Baptist was brought forth on earth as a priest to prepare the way. Let's flip the page. He has made you kings and priests to do what? 
Priest, let's talk in the first sense. What does a priest do? A priest intercedes and serves on behalf of the people. So John was magnified. He was coded. He was created. He was brought onto earth at a certain time from a lineage of priesthood to show the people the way. And in that instance, there comes an anointing. Now focus on that because we're a church of power and anointing. Focus on that. He didn't just come out of a lineage. You haven't just come out of a lineage. He didn't just come because he was highly favored, even though he was. He came because there was an anointing. And I believe that anointing was somehow, by God, kept from the beginning of time, but most of all amplified when he brought forth the priesthood. And in that priesthood, we understand that, what, it was through Aaron, she happened to be the daughter of a lineage called Aaron. And he came from another sense. And God used that anointing and put it upon this young little baby named John. And we understand that this anointing was so strong to be a priest, to prepare the way that the moment he was born, he gave glory to God. Huh? Now, we just celebrated, or are celebrating, the birth of our granddaughter, AJ, with Sammy and Abby a couple days ago. Thank you for your prayers. Very healthy baby, in spite of the fears and cautions. And I was wondering, and I even said this to uh, Abby last night in a little text as she showed me this little angel, you know, with, uh, she was in clothes that didn't fit her. She was in newborn clothes, and she's such a little peanut that she was swimming in them. And I was laughing about it, and then I said with a little bit of sincerity, I said, you know, it just struck me with wonderment that this little angel, this little peanut who's just started her life is separated by seven decades from me. Think about that. Seven decades between this little miracle and me. And as I think about that, I can only wonder about the awesome glory of God. I can only wonder that there's a legacy that continues on and on, especially as we're priests unto the Lord. You see, I, I preach dominion, I preach power, I preach authority, that's the apostolic side of it. But what I embrace the most is the priesthood. What I embrace the most is the opportunity, is the sanctity, is the favor of God to minister in his presence as a priest of God. First and foremost, for anyone else the Lord allows me to, and then also for myself. You know, we're priests first unto ourselves before we are unto anybody else. It's such a high calling of God, and there's an anointing that goes with this. So this young baby is anointed for a very special purpose. And as we're talking about the separation of time, drill in on the fact that the time of his birth compared to the time of the Messiah's first birth, his coming, was six months separating them. Six months. You see, we get the idea, you know, we understand all of that and we know they were cousins and we know they came together, but we haven't really dwelled in and wondered and there's not much telling us about what happened in their life between 
John beginning his ministry and Jesus beginning his ministry here on earth. But a lot happened. They were cousins. And God kept them both pure. And they both kept themselves pure. And we understand that Joseph took his family with some of the riches that he received to Egypt so that Jesus wouldn't be killed by the edict of Herod. What happened to John? We're not sure, but in my supposition, I think that family went together as a clan to Egypt. And God has a way of preserving those that he anoints and calls for the time for what they're supposed to do by giving them the protection of Egypt. Joseph, Egypt. Moses, Egypt. They ran to Egypt. The Israelites, Egypt. And now we understand as we look in the book of Revelation that Egypt is a world system. It's the world. It's, it's, not, it's not God, and it's not Christianity. It's not even Jewishness, but it's the world. And impacted, embedded in the midst of this world system, it's as if God puts a wall around his anointed people so that they're not only served, but somehow protected and it's like an egg of shell that breaks open at the right time. And the priesthood is, is hatched. And so they sat there together. I've often wondered and mused. I can't preach it with absolute certainty, but I can tell you that I'll take a little liberty. I would assume that John and Jesus played with each other. Just like your grandchildren, my grandchildren, the young children here that are similar in age that can relate to each other, they play with each other. They find comfort in being with each other. So you have John and Jesus who are known to each other. But yet, Jesus knows who John is, but John doesn't really know who Jesus is. John probably heard the stories and rumors from his mother that Mary had this virgin birth that probably the family was still looking a little cross-eyed about. <laughs> and Jesus' family knew that Elizabeth had a miracle that brought forth this little baby whose own father, a priest, which gives him some credibility, said, praise God, the minute he came out of the womb. They understood something was special on John. In fact, they understood outside of Mary and a few that there was more of a special calling on John than Jesus because he was in his moment. He was preparing for what was to come. There was an anointing on that little baby, and I imagine that it groomed and groomed and grew. And we understand he was very peculiar because somehow, some way, he was able to depart somewhat from his father's religious habits, and to dare to step out for a different calling than that which his father had trained him to be. His father was a priest in the temple. That's a high position. That's not a low-level outer court priest. That's, that's main guy. That's a big position. And you can imagine it was a very religious household. You can imagine that there wasn't one thing that was required in the law that they didn't attempt to keep. You can imagine it wasn't as if he was able to come home from school and say, hey, I want, you know what they're teaching us in school? What do you think, Dad? He'd slap them silly. 
and tell them, well, don't, even, don't even dare venture think about those things. Thus saith the I am. But yet John dared to step out at the time, pulled by his anointing of the Holy Spirit. And where we find is that the Scriptures pick it back up, and they tell us that the next thing that happens after John is impregnated is that an angel appears to Mary. And we know who the angel is. It's Gabriel. Have you ever wondered why there's a specific angel that was sent for Mary? Have you wondered about that? Is that just a coincidence, or was there a reason why Gabriel was sent? Well, one thing we understand about two angels that are named for us in Scripture, besides some dark angels, is that Michael seemed to be the angel sent to do war. Michael seemed to be the one who was there to push back against the, the, the enemy's power. He went to Daniel. We understand that Michael's supposed to be the one that lassos the devil, right? But Gabriel, what we see and what we receive, he ministers holiness. Now, again, I can't preach this with certainty, but I do pray and I do think about such things that there's an anointing that comes upon the priesthood and there's a ministration of angels that serve anointings. We know that from Hebrews. Angels in the flame. Right in the very first chapter. Could it be? Could it be that the anointing that God uses to minister to you to prepare the way is the same anointing that John the Baptist received. Now be careful, don't pray to angels, but just think about how important that is to God. You see, rank and order is extremely important to the Father. Honor is extremely important to the Father. Sometimes people participate in dishonor ignorantly, but to whom much is given, much is required. And I can tell you that in my life, I'm a very peculiar person. I'm the first to admit it. And Doc's shaking his head like you're not. <laughs> Takes one to know one is what you're telling me, right? That's what your wife's saying. I'm a very peculiar person. And probably too many times I've been a sand inside somebody's oyster, an adjutant. But many times, the prophetic word comes out to agitate. Everybody loves the nice prophetic words. Oh, the Lord is in the house. He loves you. Oh, okay. God has wonderful things in store for you. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. That's all, we all know that. But boy, when you tell somebody that, boom, it's either a rebuke or a correction or something that doesn't quite correlate to what they want it to be, you become an adjutant. What you will find out is as we prepare our way to prepare the way with a prophetic voice, we are more sand than we are soothing. Never says John the Baptist was soothing. As we read further, he was a peculiar guy. At least 
I and you should also take some consolation knowing he was at least deemed more peculiar than we are. I mean, I've seen some people in Israel that run around dressed like him, trying to be like him, you know, with their ephod showing, and they've got a saying saying, Jesus is coming, and they've got long hair, and they've got a beard, and they look like they've been eating honey and in the thistles, and they chain them up and take them to a place to get their heads right, and then they send them back out of Israel as fast as they can. I've seen people somewhat like that. But John the Baptist, he came to be different within the system. As we prepare the way, we're being called to be different within the system. There's many things taught within the system as they were in John's day that may not just be fact. It might just be something that's inhibiting the message to go out to prepare the way instead of helping the message to go out and pray, prepare the way. And I'm not gonna dissect all of it, I'm just gonna provoke you a little bit. I'm gonna be the sand inside your oyster. Do we have a, can we put the lights down and I ask that first graphic, please, if you could put it up a moment. And by the way, look at this, look at this, ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at that. Is there anything you know that you like to eat, sometimes, some of us do, I like oysters, that um, they're expensive too, right? I mean, you get a few for a lot. You get a dozen oysters, you're, you're, there's places charging it one or two dollars an oyster. If you go down to Fort Lauderdale on the beach and ask for blue oysters, you better be willing to pay about 30 bucks for 12 of them. Wow, I like them, but not that much. The Jew in me won't let me do that. But, but look at that, I mean, that's an ugly shell. Isn't it really? I mean, what's comely about that? It doesn't even make sense. I mean, how does something grow to be like that? How does Mama Oyster look at the baby and say, oh, you're so cute. Look at that oyster. That's ugly. It's hard. It's rough. Other than sneaking the inside of it out to eat, and throwing the rest of it away. There's one side that says it's the sand inside the oyster that agitates it to the point that then it releases this acidic covering and it creates this pearl. There's another side that's come out, but they haven't been able to prove it, that says it can't be sand because a lot of oysters are at the bottom where there is no sand and it's a parasite. Either way, I see it almost makes the same sense because whether it's a parasite or the sand, in its defense, the oyster creates this thing that comes around it and out of it comes that beautiful pearl. Something that looks nothing like what it's housed in. Something that has more value than the dollar that an oyster sells for in today's marketplace. Something that's precious. Something that we're told in the book of Revelation actually exists in heaven. Pearls. Heavenly comes out of something that's as ugly as that is earthly. Heavenly, a pearl. And what causes it to happen, whether it's sand or whether it's a parasite, to me it's the same, it's invaded a place 
that it's not supposed to be at naturally, but in that place in Egypt, in the world, in darkness. I mean, how much darker can it be than when a clam shuts tight? It's supposed to be able to shut tight enough that it holds the water out so that what it does inside can happen and not be washed away. That's how tight that is. Which is hard to understand because you look at the edges of it, they don't quite make sense, but somehow that seals tight. The world doesn't make sense to us. The fact that we're in the world but not of it, we're pearls. I would think God could have had a better plan myself. But yet I understand that the agitations of the world, the provocations of the world, the problems that we have, the challenges and the tests, he tells us even a better thing. He says, I'm refining you like even a more precious thing than pearls. I'm refining you like gold. Like gold. Now, we can, we can turn the lights back up, please. Thank you. A very dear friend of mine. Somebody that I serve and serve with in a very, very large ministry. I had sent some, daringly, some suggestions because I'm presented as an advisor. I'm invited to do what comes in my spirit. Respected as a prophet to this man. Sometimes you don't want to send things that the Lord gives you. But the good news is when you're not beholding to people, you can say, hey, you can always get rid of me tomorrow. You decide if you want to hold on to the word. So I sent it. I said, not wanting to be offensive or critical because there were some other people involved. I said, but this is what I perceive and I see. I don't know what to do with it because these other people have been with you a lot longer than me and I don't want to be perceived as somebody who's looking to circumvent authority and power. He sent me back something. He said, be the sand inside the oyster. I thought about that a moment. And I wrote back to him and said, comes natural. <laughs> you see, we're, we're taught a toast theology. You may say no, but we are. We're taught you just need to be so nice to everybody and so accepting and so tolerant and don't be provoking and just fit in and don't, you know, and yes, it, you see, it's because the lines have been shaded. The lines between order and authority and between being truthful and pointed in the gospel, they've been shaded. We've been sort of challenged that when we see sin, and especially in the church, eh, don't be judgmental. <laughs> but something happens when you allow sin to grow inside of any relationship that is holy to the Lord, whether it's your family, whether it's your church, whether it's the school, wherever it is, sin begins to contaminate it all. 
and light gets obscured in darkness. But when you're working in that opportunity that you're the sand inside that ugly looking shell, then you understand that you can have grace and you can also have a heart that wants to be considered an understanding, but not to the point that we accept and tolerate sin. And furthermore, not to participate in the sin. Not too long ago, not too long ago, I had a, a man who asked me to come over to his house, spend a little time with him, and I did, and in the midst of it, he took out a joint. And he talks God and says he believes in God, but he says there's nothing wrong with this. God gave us this. And I looked at him, and I said, old Frank has been dead a long time, and he ain't coming back. He said, well, you don't mind if I do. I said, yes, I do. What? I said, I'm not judging you, but I'm telling you, I'm not going to participate in it with you. God forbid that you would stand up and try to destroy my testimony and say, Pastor Frank was here while I was getting high. Huh? I said, now, if you want to put that back away, I'll stay. And if you don't, God bless you. I'm out of here. That was the last time he invited me to his house. What do you do? You shake off your shoes. In the priesthood, especially a priesthood to prepare the way, you're moving prophetically whether you know it or not. You're moving with a John the Baptist anointing that pushes all the way back to Father Abraham, goes through the bloodline of Isaac and Jacob, comes forth through the Levite priests and Aaron, handed off through Jesus Christ. And in that, there's a requirement to be the sand. To be a sand that cries out, prepare the way. Jesus is coming. To whom much is given, much is required. You see, when we understand who we are, and we understand not only the authority, but the responsibility that we have for who we are, Yes, I mean, we love to talk about the privileges of everything that we have in the Holy Spirit. God bless all of that. I cherish it with all that I have. We love to talk about the gift of healing and the gift of knowledge and the gift of prophecy and the gift of, of, of favor and the gift of generosity and the gift of love and all of the gifts and grace and all of them, they're all wonderful. But boy, we sort of hesitate when it comes down to talking about the gift of correction. Don't we? It's hard. The world doesn't have a hard time trying to correct you. I mean, as far as they're concerned, you're a misfit. You need corrected. But we have a hard time speaking correction into the world. And when we do, Oftentimes, immediately, what? It's twisted. It's brought to a point where you're judgmental and the most radical rightest there is in the world, that's you too. 
but the world never looks that way on the other extreme. It's only someone who calls himself a Christian that's called a supremacist. <laughs> I can tell you there's some leftists who are real supremacists. There's only one person they like themselves. They just haven't realized it yet. So John the Baptist came at a very specific time for a very specific issue, but we need to know by looking at the synoptic scriptures after we see that John uh, is actually, the story of John is given, then Luke starts telling us about the angel appearing to Mary. We understand what that's all about. I'm not going to get into that at this moment. And uh, other than verse 30 where he says, Fear not, Mary, you shall... You have found favor with God. It didn't say that God just supernaturally elected you for favor, as some would be taught. It said she found favor. You know what that tells me? That somewhere in that, that little woman's, that young girl's spirit, in her prayer time, whatever it was, very religious, by the way, I'm sure, Somewhere in that time while she was frolicking and walking in those areas of Israel, up and down some of the areas and watching the, the trades and what was going on in that area in the household, somewhere in that time, I can imagine that she opened up her heart to God, the revelation of who she knew, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of her father, the God of her religion. And I would assume that some point in that life, prior to that, she offered her heart to him. Can you imagine, first of all, in that custom, and unfortunately in that custom around the world right now, we see it in Iran, where the women are bravely fighting to be recognized and to stop the suppression, the cruel suppression of that government and that religion that's upon them so much that they can justify killing them because they don't wear a scarf. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? And here's this young girl who dares maybe in her own time to step out a little bit and say, here I am, use me. She found favor. Favor didn't find her. She found favor. That tells me you and I can find favor. That tells you and me that when we're obedient to God and we open up and say, here I am, that the Holy Spirit speaks upon you and says, you have found favor with God. What it leads to, who knows? But I do know this. We are not out of our time. We're right in our time. We have been called and created for such a time as this to prepare the way for the next coming of the Lord. They overlap. We don't know when John began to preach his ministry. We know it wasn't too long. They wouldn't have tolerated it for too long. They considered him a cult. But yet Pharisees and Sadducees and some who heard would come because he was ministering 
with a special anointing that was released for a special purpose for a special time. And what I want us to become aware of is that you are favored with a special anointing to preach with a special power in a special time for a special purpose to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And how do you open and unlock that? Lord, here I am. Here I am. Is there a formula? No. It's a relationship. A relationship. You don't have to be the brightest lamp, God knows. Look at me. You don't have to be the one who's gone through years and years of Bible college. No. You don't have to be the one who can quote Scripture offhand like this. Sometimes I find those people to be somewhat dogmatic and religious. You know, you just want to have a conversation and they're smacking you in the head with a scripture. Come on. No. You just have to say, Lord, here I am. Here I am. And be prepared to be peculiar. Get it settled in your spirit. You're different. And guess what? You're going to be tested. You're going to be put in situations where you're going to have to make decisions quickly. You're going to have to have some lifestyle changes. Things that you're doing in the dark, stop them. Stop them. Don't justify them. Look at it for what it is and say, I need help. I got to get rid of this right now. If you can't do it yourself, ask someone to help you. Just do it. No shame. There's no shame in wanting correction, in wanting to get ourselves fine-tuned, and wanting to become a pearl and refined to become gold. I ultimately think that the reason John went out in the wilderness and, you know, ate honey and, and locusts was to refine them some more. Huh. To the point he didn't care. Repent. You know, if you're telling someone to repent, what else are you telling them? You're a sinner. Huh? Go tell someone to repent. You may as well slap them right across the face. Me? Repent. He was telling the world that all of them were sinners, not one of them. I can imagine maybe he got thrown out of his house telling his family, repent. What do you mean repent? We have the law. What are you talking about? We have the day of atonement. What, do you, what repent? Repent. What, where, where's that at? What holy day is that? Atonement comes. Wait till holy day. Holy day we repent. What are you talking about? Something's wrong with you. Repent. Repent. Prepare the way. And then as we go through the scriptures, the next thing we know, this strange human being, this priest, this son of Zacharias, this one who's the lineage, the legacy, the lawful one to his father's priesthood, he removes himself from all of that takes himself out into a wilderness, relying on nothing but 
the provision of God for everything and anything. Somehow he must have gone to Gap or somewhere else. He found a whole different wardrobe than everybody else was wearing. Some kind of a belt and skins and crazy looking stuff. Didn't care. Didn't care. And in that place, he began to preach a message. And he knew why. He knew he was preparing the way. But he wasn't really sure how, what, and when. So much to the point that when his cousin came, he didn't realize that was the Messiah. And even questioned it to the point his head was cut off. How many of you know that the season, the fig tree, to prepare the way is already opened up? We're in it. We're in the wilderness. The anointing is flowing. The world needs a message. And the message never changes. It's Jesus Christ. But beloved, listen to me. He wasn't preaching to (laughs) non-believers. He was preaching to his church, the synagogue. He was telling the synagogue, that religion is going to get you nowhere. He was telling them, you're vipers and you're snakes. Your father is the devil. He was telling them, you don't have it right. You need to repent and get in a real relationship with the Lord because the Messiah is coming. And he's coming with a refining fire. And when he comes, everything's going to change even as the prophet said. Who's our message to? Well, we go on missions, we need to. We need to go help people. We need to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's evangelism. But the prophetic spirit, it speaks to the system in authority now. And that system is encased in the world. So here's our challenge. This is our challenge. I'm closing with it. How do you become the sand inside the clam, inside the oyster, and still be the grace of Jesus Christ? How do you do it? It's a balance every hour, every day. It's decision-making process every day. You pray God for grace. You pray Him for love. You pray to get rid of unforgiveness and bitterness. You throw it away as fast as you can, but you run from sin, and you don't tolerate rebellion and disobedience. You call it what it is, and you live it. Sometimes it means rejection, more often than not. Sometimes it means dishonor. Sometimes it means not being able to be comfortable in a given situation. Sand within the oyster has its place, and then it's displaced, and he comes. We'll perceive this together more. We're going to pursue it together more. There's a lot more than what we've talked about. But I I want to finish on a very good note. If we put the lights down and put my other graphic up, please. (laughs) 
Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's you. That's you. You're no longer the pearl in the oyster. You've come out. You've become the light of the world. You've so bright that in any environment, any place that you're at, you pierce the darkness. You don't have to worry about whether the dark has more authority, more power, and can overcome you. You've already overcome the darkness because of him, Jesus Christ. You have all that you need and the abundance of all that he is. But something about light. If you don't turn the switch and turn it on, it's either dark or dim. Would you flick this light, please? And then we have light. Light. Hello, light. Yes. Then we have light. We'll pick back up if the Lord allows us. Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for the glory of the Lord has risen upon thee, but gross darkness upon the earth. That's who you are. That's who we are. And our challenge is the world, but our biggest challenge, it's the body of Christ. Besides ourselves, yes, yourself, but then next is the body of Christ, because the body of Christ essentially even eschatologically, the majority of the body of Christ is looking for the wrong events. So we got a big chapter to turn. We need to get on the right starting point. We need to tell the truth. And we don't have to understand everything, but one thing we do is we point the way to the coming of Messiah. Nothing else, the coming Messiah. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you, Lord, for provoking us, for letting us be the sand that's being agitated and provoked, Father, and to scratch and to claw and to become and create into that beautiful pearl, Lord, that you then says has value, heavenly value. Father, help us to, to work with you, not against you. Help us to work with each other, not against each other. Help us, Lord, to be sandpaper for one another with love and grace and love as we can and should be, Lord, to become what you want us to be, but more so to, to be in our own little ways. That voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way the Messiah is coming. Jesus is coming. Lord, we look forward to celebrating you, Lord Jesus, in your first coming. And we marvel at the story of the nativity, but Lord, we also look forward with wonderment at your next coming. Help us, Lord, to grasp the anointing of what you've called us to be and to be that light in the world wherever we're at, whatever we're doing, whatever we're struggling with, to become that light in the world knowing this light shall never be extinguished. This light can only become brighter even unto eternity. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.